If you could open up your Bibles to Second John, Second John, I'm going to be beginning in verse four. Second John, beginning in verse four. Hear the word of the Lord. I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in the truth, as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For as many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Watch yourselves that we do not lose those things which we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses, And does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I have come to you to speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sisters greet you. Amen. So we're going to be looking at verse 7, and Lord willing, we'll see if we can get all the way down to the end of this book. But in order to really examine verse 7, we need to understand what comes before. Because look at verse 7. It says, for. It begins with the statement, for. So in order to really be able to connect this, we need to kind of summarize what we have seen in the first six verses. So perhaps a summary might be helpful. The author, of course, is John, John the Apostle. And he says that he's writing this letter to the elect lady and to her children. The elect lady refers to the church as a whole, and her children refer to individual Christians particularly. Then he goes on to say that he loves them. And not just him, but everybody who knows the truth. Then jumping down to verse 4 through 6, he then exhorts these Christians who he loves He asks them to continue to walk in the command that they've already received. He says, I'm not writing to you a new commandment, but I'm writing to you a commandment that you've had from the beginning. This is the original commandment. This is the commandment that they love one another. And then in verse 6, we get this crucial statement. He says, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. So the reason this is a crucial statement is because the command to love one another is not a command to walk by your squishy feelings or walk by your emotions. Love is not defined by how you feel, but love is defined by the Word of God. That is what love is. It is to walk according to His commandments, not your feelings. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So we need to go to the law. We need to go to the testimony of God. If you don't speak according to this word, there's no light in you. You're just making it up. You're just doing what you want to do. And if you think about it, that was the problem in the beginning, wasn't it? That man just did what he wanted to do. God gave him a command and said, do not eat of that tree by his word. And man said, I don't believe you. I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm just going to do what feels right. We have a whole society confused about this. They say, just be you. The truth is, you are evil. Don't just be you, but follow after God's word and what he says. Psalm, 110, Psalm 119 says, your word 
is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word, not your feelings, not your emotions, not what your friends say, not what's popular on Facebook, but your word. John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Christ here prays for the people of God and tells them to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be made holy by your truth. That's God's truth. And what is God's truth? It's his word. His word is truth. So the commandment to love is defined by the word of God, by God. If you want to know how to love, you need to go to the word of God. So immediately after John has reminded them to love one another, and he defines this love by God's commandment, he says in verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, verse 7 begins with the preposition for. Everybody see that? Hope everybody looking at their Bible. Everybody see that it begins with for. Now, depending on what Bible you have, you might not have that because some of the more should I say, interpretive translations, leave out the word for altogether. So some examples, the CSB, the NRSV, the Good News Translation, the Contemporary English Version, and several others delete for altogether. Why? Why do they delete it? Because they can't make sense of it, right? Because it doesn't seem to be a connection between verse 7 and what comes before. So they say, well, this is just a weird way of saying kind of nothing, so let's just delete it to smooth it out. But, but that's not good. We don't just delete things because we don't understand them. Just keep it in there. You don't understand? Just keep it in there. Maybe somebody else will understand what it means. So what is the connection? What's the connection between verse 7 and verse 4 and 6? Well, to discover this, we need to have some idea what verse 7 is saying. What's verse 7 saying? It's a warning that many deceivers have gone out into the world. So in light of the fact that there's many deceivers, many antichrists, many unbelievers, many false teachers, in light of this, he then says previously that we need to love one another and we need to walk according to God's commandments and let God define what love is. But the question is, what's the connection between those two things? What's the connection between we need to walk in love and let God define what love is and the fact that the world's full of antichrist, deceivers, and unbelievers? How are those two things connected? Well, I think there are two connections. The first is that we live in a dangerous world. Amen? This is a dangerous world. Does anybody like Pilgrim's Progress? Anybody read Pilgrim's Progress? I know one person reads Pilgrim's Progress, and the entire book of Pilgrim's Progress is what? In fact, I have a little kid version of Pilgrim's Progress, right? And that title, that kid's version, is A Dangerous Journey. Isn't that true? Why is it called A Dangerous Journey? Because from here to the celestial city is a dangerous path. It's full of all kinds of goons and goblins and things that are going to eat you up. We live in a dangerous world full of sin, full of the devil, full of bad things. Here's the word of Christ. He says this in Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Who are the sheep? Not them. You are the sheep. They are the wolves. Last I checked, wolves eat sheep. Isn't that true? Do sheep eat wolves? I don't think so. If you are a sheep and you're surrounded by wolves, that means you live in a dangerous world. And that means that you could be gobbled up. Praise be the Lord that we have a shepherd that keeps out the wolves. But we're still sheep among wolves. And that's why we need to be wise. Be wise as serpent and harmless as doves. Because if you're not wise, those wolves will kind of come get you and they're going to come eat you. In Romans 8, 36, Paul says this, For your sake, God, we are killed all the day long. 
For we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. So, we live in a dangerous world. We live in a world that wants to kill us, that wants to harm us, that wants to destroy us. This world is full of heretics. It's full of false teachers. It's full of wolves in sheep's clothing. See, it's one thing for the wolves just to be out there, right? The wolves are out there, so we just lock the door and stay in here. But unfortunately, the wolves aren't here too. We live in a dangerous world, full of animals, full of creatures, full of goons and goblins that are trying to eat us up and destroy us. So in light of this truth, what do we need to do? We need to walk in love. Because the opposite of love is what? It's hate. And hate produces not peace, but disruption. Now, why might disruption, why might conflict, why might all kinds of battling within the church be a really bad thing in light of the truth that the world is full of wolves that are trying to eat you up? You see this? If there's a bunch of bad people out there, why might we need to walk in love in here? Anybody have any ideas? If they're all trying to kill you out there, why might we need to be a place of love, a place of harmony, a place of peace? Well, if they're all trying to kill us out there, then we better not be trying to kill each other in here. Doesn't that make sense? That's a bad idea. In a world full of enemies trying to besiege you and destroy you, the last thing you want to do is kill your friends. Jesus says this in Mark 3.23. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end is coming. Does anybody recognize this passage? Interesting enough, this is the passage that Abraham Lincoln is quoted as saying, a house divided cannot stand. Anybody heard that? House divided cannot stand, Abraham Lincoln. No, that's Jesus. Abraham Lincoln stole that from Jesus. But the principle is true. Why did Abraham Lincoln say that? Because he was in a time where his house was divided. And he was saying, don't do this. We can't stand as a nation if we kill each other, right? Well, we cannot stand as Christians if we kill each other. Civil war is a really bad idea. It will destroy a kingdom. It's even worse to be in civil war when you're being besieged and attacked by a foreign enemy. Has anybody ever played the game Risk? You know that game? Some of you may say, I'll never play that game again. It's a long game. It's a game where you get to pick little empires. You get to get little continents, right? And if you're going to win that game, generally speaking, you're going to have to develop some alliances because you can't protect all of your borders. And so you have to say to the person to the side of you, look, stop attacking me, and I'll stop attacking you. And then you can fortify that border over there, and I'll fortify this border. That's how the game works. And eventually you double-cross each other and then try to win. That's the game. Now, sometimes in this game, when you create an alliance and say, okay, I'm not going to attack your border down here. You don't attack mine. All of a sudden, this other guy over here who won't make an alliance with you attacks you, tries to steal your bonus. Everybody been there? So what do you do? You attack them back. Try to get your bonus back. But here's what you don't do. You don't double-cross your ally at this point, right? If you do, I can guarantee you two things. Number one, I'll never play with you. Or at least I'll never join forces with you because you're a bad player. Number two, I can guarantee you that you did not win that game. Why? Because when you're being attacked from one side, you don't double-cross your enemies and start two wars at the same time. Does that make sense? You don't start two wars at the same time. You fight one war at one time. You don't have time to fight your friends when you're being besieged by your enemy. Do you get the point? Well, hopefully we see the theological point is we don't have time to be killing each other when the devil is already trying to kill us. 
That's what the devil wants you to do. It wants you to focus your energies on small and trifle things and kill each other instead of focusing on the greater enemy who's out there trying to destroy us. And this is not a new strategy. The devil has been trying to sow conflict in the church from the very beginning. Even in the apostolic church, Pastor Neil was talking about this, sometimes that we like to glorize the ancient church. If we could just get back to the ancient church. Today's church is all messed up, right? People say Today's church is all messed up, but yesterday's church, that was the pure church. That's what we got to get to. Back in the early church, the days of Corinth, that's the church that we want to get into. The church where the Lord's Supper was a drunken party. That, no, no, we don't want to get back to that, right? There's some things that were good about the early church, but not all things were good because they were men just like we were men. And the devil was alive back then just as he is today. And the devil was sowing discord in the early church just as he's trying to sow discord in our church. By the way, the main problem of the Corinthian church when it came to the Lord's Supper wasn't drunkenness. That was a big problem. But the main problem is they were sectarians. The rich people would all get together and say, we got off work early, so let's get our drink on and eat as much good steak as we can. And then the poor people come and there was no more food for them. Everybody see that, right? Everybody familiar with First Corinthians? That's what was going on. The devil was sowing discord within the church. And this didn't just happen in Corinth, but this happens all over the place. Here's another example, Philippians 4.2. Paul says, I implore Judea and I implore Cynthia to be of the same mind in the Lord. And then he goes on to talk about how wonderful these women are. These are two very godly women that Paul had to name names and tell these two people to cut it out because you guys are not of the same mind. So I implore you to be of the same mind, which implies they were not of the same mind because they were having problems. Conflict breaks out. Conflict happens. Now, we need to be of the same mind. We need to be on the same team. We need to get together. We need to work this out. We need to come together. Now, does this mean, this coming together, does this mean that we always need to agree on everything? Is that even possible? Is it possible that everybody in the church would all just agree? I'll tell you, it is possible. You just agree with me. Just give up all your own opinions and just agree with me. But something tells me that you won't do that. Something tells me you want me to do that for you, Right? You wouldn't want me to just say, just agree with me, but sometimes that's why we act toward others. If you just all agree with me, we'd have no problems. But that's not, how we're, that's not realistic. The reality is we're going to disagree at some times with each other, and we need to learn that we can still be of the same mind even when we disagree. It sounds contradictory, but it's true. You can disagree and still be of the same mind. How? Well, in Philippians chapter 3, right before he tells these two women to be of the same mind, he tells you what the same mind means. In Philippians 3.15, we read this. You, might, you can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. Philippians 3.15. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. What mind? Well, you just had to read before. That his mindset. His perspective on things. He says, if you're mature, you have this perspective on things. And if, anything, if in anything you think otherwise, i.e., if you disagree with me, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already obtained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Here's a summary. I'm right. You should eventually come to see that I am right. That's what he's saying. There's a right mentality, and you should have this right mentality, and everyone who mature has this right mentality. But if you don't agree, if you're objectionable. If you have not arrived, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to raise a huge fuss, but rather God will reveal even this to you. I'm going to turn you over to God. 
I'm going to trust that God will reveal even this truth to you. Verse 16, nevertheless, to the degree that we have already obtained, wherever you are, let us walk after the same rule, let us be of the same mind. In other words, wherever you are, continue to walk after the same things, continue to have the same mind. Namely, let's make the main things the main things. And let's keep going even so that we may disagree about this other thing. We can still be of the same mind even if we disagree on very small matters. Again, notice he is not saying that every opinion is equally good. He says every mature person agrees with me. He says you can be immature. I remember one time my college professor said, you have a right to be wrong. And I'm not going to take it away from you. I'm going to present you the truth. If you still want to be wrong, that's fine. You can remain in your wrongness. And that's how we should be. We don't need to force everyone to simply agree with us. We don't need to force everyone to simply have the same mindset of us all at once. Rather, we trust that God will reveal things to people in the meantime. But in the meantime, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. We should not be people who are merely disagreeable, but rather we should be people that are willing to work together with people who are brothers and sisters that may disagree about some small things. Because the devil wants to make the small things into the big things and wants to make the big things into the small thing. Isn't that true? He wants you to focus on these small matters while you're ignoring the weightier matters. But brothers, we don't need to be deceived by the devil because according to 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of his devices, lest the devil should overtake us. We're on, we're on to the devil. We know that he's trying to do this. And so we're not going to let him do this. In Proverbs 14, 1, it says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pull it down with her hands. So there's two types of women. Really, there are two types of people. The one who builds the house and the one who rips it down. Which one are you? Which one are you tempted to be? Be the one who builds up the house. The house is the people of God. Be a person who builds up the church not someone who simply pulls it down. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who falls alone. For when he is falls, no one is there to help him. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Hopefully you don't miss the point there. It's okay to be one, but a whole lot better to be two. Everybody see that? Just imagine that you're walking at night all by yourself. Are you a little scared? Are you a little afraid? You see some creepy person walking up to you? Do you wish you had dad, mom, sister, brother, anybody? Probably, right? You're all alone, and there's some creepy person coming your direction. It might be wise to have another battle buddy. In the Army, we used to call them battle buddies. Everywhere you go, you have to have a battle buddy. Somebody that went along with you, because two is better than one. But you know what's better than two? Three. Isn't that true? Three is hard to beat. You see one person coming up to you, you might be afraid. Two people coming up to you, time to get really afraid. Three people, that's a group. It's time to run. You're not going to escape. I don't care how strong you are. You can be Mike Tyson. Three people is not going to be good for you. A a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. It's powerful. When we have unity... When we come together and we work together. Well, what is that threefold cord? Well, it's the church. It's the body of believers working together with the elders and the deacons. You see that? That's a three-folded cord. The church, the elders, and the deacons coming together, working together, and together we can do much things. This is the body, this is the congregation working in unity. Or here's another three-folded cord. You have a mother and a father and their children working together. 
That's a strong unit, a family unit working together. And I want to get off on that, but that's what the world's trying to destroy, the family unit, because it's a powerful unit, because it works so well together. We are strong together, but we are weak separated. Jesus did not say in vain in his high priestly prayer right before he was going to leave in John chapter 17. He says, I don't pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one. Jesus left praying that his church would be one and be united. Why? That the world may believe that you sent me. Hope you see the connection. Jesus prayed that his church would be united and work together. Why did he pray that we'd be united? That the world might believe that you sent me. So the connection of this is the oneness of the church is connected with the Great Commission. He gave the Great Commission not just to you, but to the whole church, right? He didn't just say, you, go make disciples of all nations. He said, y'all. He said, the church. He said, all of y'all need to go and do this Great Commission. So we see that unity is essential for the completion of the Great Commission. And really, that should not be surprising. Do you think that you're going to complete the Great Commission all by yourself? All by yourself, just you. You want to do it all? No. We need each other. We need to work together. We don't need to be an island onto ourselves. The Great Commission is too big for you alone. We need to come together. And by the way, not just we as individuals working and banding together to come to a church. That's, that's what church is, by the way. Christians recognizing that we can't do it alone and just being obedient to God who told us you can't do it alone. Coming together and binding in covenant with each other to protect each other, to love each other, to pray for each other, to be in each other's lives. This is what God has done. This is what Christ has done so that we can be unified. But not just that. Remember, the unity of all of God's people is a collection of individuals, is a collection of churches all working together to complete the Great Commission. Now, I want you to think about that. And one of the things that concerns me is this church ever becoming an island onto itself. What do I mean? This is not the only church that Christ has created. Christ has created multiple churches with multiple different gifts. And we need to have some kind of relationship with other like-minded churches so that we don't become an island to ourselves, so that we can do more together. Let me give you some examples. We can't do it all. For example, what if, God forbid, the Pastor Neil and myself get hit by a bus tomorrow? What are you going to do then? Right? You know what the, the standard traditional model is? Go on Indeed.com and put in a job posting that says, Pastor Needed. Is that right? You don't know them from Adam to Eve. You can't see what kind of character they are from at all. They're not vetted one bit. And guess what? You remember when you went on a job interview? You put on your favorite suit, said how great you are told a bunch of things, exaggerated your resume. You think pastors don't do that? You think they're going to come in with the warts revealed to you? Of course not. They're going to do the same thing that you did to other people when you got your job. Well, maybe you didn't do that, but somebody did, right? You ever interview someone and you thought they were a great person? And then two months later, you thought, they lied to me. This is an awful person. I wish I would have never hired them. The point is this. We can't be an island to ourselves. We can't be just all dependent on ourselves. We need to be able to work together, to be able to communicate together, to be able to share resources, to be in communication with other churches that are of like faith and practice. And it's not just in that scenario where 
both of your pastors die. There, there could be a whole bunch of different scenarios like that where one person leaves and another person retires or something happens where all of a sudden your pastoral team is gone. But it's not just that. There's all kinds of things. What if somebody came in here and said, I want to become a pastor. I want to one day serve God in full-time ministry. How are we going to be able to train that kind of person? Do you think that me and Neil can do it all by ourselves? We don't have that kind of time or that kind of resources. We would need to band together with other churches or band together with other pastors to get this person theologically trained. Anybody who's ever got theological education probably got it that way, right? Because this is beneficial. This is helpful. Well, think about this. What if somebody came into this church and said, I want to be a missionary? Peter did that, by the way. I want to be a missionary. I want to go out for the sake of his name. That's going to take resources. That's going to take money. Do you think that this church alone could send out a missionary? No, they can't. They're going to need a network of Christians and churches to surround them to be able to send them out. The point is that we can't do these things alone. Unity is a powerful force that needs to be reckoned with. Radical individualism is not helpful and is not how we complete the Great Commission. So the first connection between verse 6 and verse 7, is that in the presence of enemies, we need to come together and be bound in love. When there's all these enemies outside of the church trying to eat you up and destroy you, you need to come together. You need to work together. If it was in a time of complete peace, we could all just fight each other. But in a time of war, we have to work together. And guess what? Don't be confused. Just because Muslims are not killing us today, nobody We're not living in communist China where they're throwing you in prison. Does not mean that we are not besieged. Does not mean that we are not in war. The second connection is that the command to love one another needs to be defined by the Bible, not our squishy feelings. Now, why might this be important in a world full of heretics and enemies of the cross? The reason is, is because loving our neighbor sometimes looks counterintuitive in a sin-cursed world. Sometimes the loving thing to do doesn't look that loving. Sometimes the loving thing to do, people say, that wasn't loving, right? What happens if one of the church members run off with the secretary? You know what the loving thing to do is? Excommunicate them. And guess what? When you do that, a whole bunch of people are going to say, that wasn't very loving. But that's what God's word tells you to do. Sometimes the loving thing to do is to do what is counterintuitive and to do what God's word says. And that's what we're going to see in the rest of our passage. So what is the loving thing to do in a world full of heretics? We'll look again at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world and do, who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So the first loving thing you can do to a world full of heretics is identify these people as heretics. You see that? Look, look at verse 7. John is not afraid to call these people deceivers and heretics. He's not saying, well, everybody has an opinion and, you know, they might be wrong, but they're still brothers and sisters of Christ. No, he says these people have crossed the line. These people have left Christianity. They have left the fold. This is damnable heresy, right? Hopefully nobody believes that an antichrist is going to heaven. Do you believe that? You're going to stand in heaven and say, look, there's an antichrist over there. No. If you're an antichrist, you're not going to heaven. And he says that all of the people who confess that Jesus Christ has not come into the flesh, they are the antichrist. They are the deceiver. He's not just talking about the leaders. He's not just talking about the big shot, the person on TV with all the followers. He's saying everybody who follows them, they are all deceived. They are all deceivers. They are all in antichrist. 
That is, people who teach false teachings, especially about the person of Jesus, like denying his incarnation, that is denying that he is a true man, is a heretic, and has denied the faith, and he is an antichrist. Now, what about people who say that there is no resurrection? People say, well, it's just a spiritual resurrection. There is no physical bodily resurrection. Well, according to 2 Timothy 2.17, that these people also have shipwrecked the faith of some. Now, if you shipwreck someone's faith, that means their faith doesn't exist anymore, right? If you're on a ship and it's been shipwrecked, you're not driving around anymore. You're not boating around. It's gone. It's shipwrecked. It's over. And so those who teach that there is no resurrection have shipwrecked the faith of some, meaning that the doctrine that there is no resurrection makes you a heretic, makes you a deceiver, makes you an antichrist. Now, according to the Bible also, there's another thing that makes you a deceiver, heretic, and antichrist. This is what Paul talked about in Galatians. Anybody remember? What did Paul in Galatians get very angry about? He says that there are people out there who are teaching a different gospel. And he says, if you teach a gospel that's not the true gospel, because there's only one gospel, you're teaching a false gospel. And he says to those people that they should be accursed. And he says it twice. If you, if you missed it the first time, he says it again. If you're teaching a different gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Now again, some might say this sounds harsh. Some might say this doesn't sound loving. But I assure you that it is. It is the most loving thing in the world to identify a heretic as a heretic and not to pretend that there is peace. Not, not to say there is peace when there is no peace. We need to identify them as such and then recognize how we should respond to such heresy. And we will see how we should respond to such heresy. So look down at verse 8. In light of the heretics teaching heresy, how should we respond? Verse 8. Watch yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. So the first way is realizing that they're dangerous and that we need to watch ourselves. Why? Because if we don't watch ourselves, we might fall into their heresy. We might invite them over and listen to them and eventually become convinced in their teaching, and we might lose our full reward. Now, what is that talking about? What's a full reward? Well, the reward is heaven. It's saying, don't follow the heretics. Otherwise, you're going to lose what you've been working for, the path of salvation that you've been headed on, and ultimately end up in hell. Now, some might question that. Is that really what it's saying? Look, well, look at verse 9. 9 is pretty clear. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. It's very clear. There are two people described here. There's a whoever, and then there's an everybody else. Everybody see that? Verse 8, whoever, and then it goes on to describe everybody else who abides. So the first group is those who don't abide, and it says whoever. Not some, not many, not most, but whoever. There's another whoever in the Bible, and that's John 3.16. John 3, Maybe that's some of your favorite verse. Somebody asked me recently, what was my favorite verse? And I was a little caught off guard by that question. What is my favorite verse? And I thought, John 3.16. John 3.16 says, whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life, Right? That means everybody. That doesn't mean some. That doesn't mean most. That means everybody. Well, here's the opposite of John 3.16. It's right here. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. It could not be more clear. If you transgress in this way by going along and abandoning the doctrine of Christ, biblical orthodoxy about the person and work of Jesus Christ, whether who he is or his gospel, you do not have God. It could not be more clear than this. Now, some of you might say, well, I believe 
once saved, always saved. Right? I believe that you can't lose your salvation. Okay? That doesn't change the fact that this verse is still in our Bible, isn't it? It says, if you abandon the doctrine of Christ, you are going to hell. Now, some might say, I believe that eternal life is eternal. And I believe that we have eternal life. Therefore, I can't lose it. Well, look at verse 10 again. If you transgress and do not abide in the doctrine of Christ, you are going to hell. It's so clear. We need to believe the Bible. We don't need to believe our thoughts. Now, does that mean that we can lose our salvation? I don't think so. And here's how. I believe the people of God will believe this warning. They will heed this warning. And they will not abandon the doctrine of Christ. See, it's not if you abandon the doctrine of Christ, you'll still be saved. That's not true. Look at verse 10 again. Very clear. If you abandon the doctrine of Christ, you're going to hell. I believe that Christ will lose none of his sheep because all of his sheep will not abandon the doctrine of Christ. That's how we put it together. We don't go around telling people who reject Jesus Christ that they're saved. No, but we do believe that nobody who truly believes in Jesus Christ will ever do this. Believers are found in the next part. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If God has got a hold of you, he's not letting go. God will never leave you nor forsake you. You will work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Everybody knows that verse, right? Now notice, it said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now some people might want to change that verse and say, work out your salvation with reverence and reverence, or all in all, but that's not what it says. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What kind of fear and trembling? Matthew 10, 28 says, do not fear man who kills the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's how we're supposed to fear God. Now, there are, there are certain ways that we're supposed to fear God by reverencing him, but that's not what that's talking about. You're just, you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not being presumptuous, heeding God's warnings, refusing to continue to believe in heresy so that you would end up in verse 10. In the words of Hebrews 6, 9, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Despite verse 10, I believe all of you who have the Holy Spirit will be saved, will be finally saved. But again, it won't be because you abandon Christ and Christ is no longer true to his word. It's because you will never abandon Jesus Christ. So don't do it. Be careful. If there's someone spreading heresy, guard your heart, cover your ears, run away. Do not abide in that heresy. Recognize it is dangerous. And if you do become convinced of it, you're going to hell. It's just that simple. Now, let's finish out this book quickly. Look at verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, that's the true doctrine. That's the true gospel. That's things that are true about Christ, particularly when it comes to his deity and his person. Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Here's what it's saying. If there ever is a heretic that comes and teaches you different things about who Jesus is, says that Jesus is not God, that Jesus did not come as a man, that the gospel is not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are not to receive him. You are not to greet him. You are not to become a partaker of him. You are not to encourage him. You are to run away. You are to identify him as a heretic and to stay away from him because you don't want to partake in his evil deeds, right? We give to good ministries. We give to ministries that are doing good things. We give to a crisis pregnancy center, right? What if you found out we were given to Planned Parenthood? I'd have a problem. You should have a problem, right? Because you don't want to be a partaker of evil. What if you were going to be supporting a missionary who was going to spread the lies of Jehovah Witnesses doctrine, that Jesus is not truly God? You wouldn't want to be caught up in that. You want to be caught up in doing the right thing and supporting the right people and the right cause, 
lest you become a partaker of evil. That's what it's saying. Stay away from heretics. Do not support them. Don't greet them. Don't encourage them. Don't help them. We need to support the right people, not the wrong people. All right, let's finish out this book. Look at verse 12. Having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak to you face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Now, I'm about to get in trouble right now. This is what this verse is saying. You see this smartphone? Be careful with it. That's what it's saying. This verse is saying this, that I did it. I had many things to say to you. I wanted to say a whole lot of things to you, but I didn't want to write it with paper and ink. I didn't want to text it to you. I wanted to see you face to face and to communicate to you face to face so that we could deal with these issues. But many people today say, I don't want to deal with you face to face. I want to hide behind the phone. You see the opposite? You see that? It's the opposite. We don't need to be doing that. Now, sometimes a text message might be the most appropriate thing, but not all the time. Look at that verse. Not all the time. Some things you have to do face to face. Sometimes you got to pull someone aside. You don't break up with people over text message. Amen? You don't ask girls out over text message. There's a whole bunch of things you don't do over text message. And there's very few things that you can't do in person. Don't be someone who hides behind the phone. Don't be someone who sends out nasty text messages or nasty things and hide behind the keyboard. You should be able to say things face to face. That's the kind of people we are. Because we don't need to hide behind anything. We can speak the truth. Now again, let me just close it out what I'm not saying. Did Paul write a letter? Did he say some things by paper and ink? Yes, he did. The whole Bible is full of people writing out things with, with paper and ink. Paper and ink is useful. Text messages are useful. But there's a time and place for it. And we should be able to at least sometimes say, amen, I didn't want to send that text message. I didn't want to send out that email. I wanted to come face to face. And I want to talk to you face to face. And let me just say this. There's one very practical reason that we should want to talk to people face to face. It's very hard to be misunderstood face to face. Put it differently. It's very easy to be misunderstood behind a message. Isn't that true? Because you can't hear tone. You can't see body expression. People can be all kinds of confused. So just learn this lesson from John. Sometimes you got to show up face to face and love people and have, be willing to invest your time. Because sometimes, truth be told, why do we like sending that text message? Because we don't have time for people, right? We're busy. We don't want to have a five-minute conversation. We just want to send out the text message. Don't do that. Don't be that kind of person. Be the kind of person that loves people and says, I love you, and I can show you I love you. I'll give you my time. I'll be there. I'll walk with you in this dark world together. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we don't need to define love and holiness by our squishy feelings, by not offending anybody, but we can define truth and love by your word. Lord, help us to do all of your word, say the hard things when we need to say the hard things, and be tender when we need to be tender. Lord, we see both in your word. We see you meek and mild and tender. But at the same time, when people were teaching all kinds of heresies and all kinds of bad things, you rose up and wrote hard things. Help us to imitate those things. Lord, help us be people who utilize technology, writing, text messages, emails, all those things to advance communication. But help us not to be people who hide behind these things and refuse to give people our time because we're too busy, because we don't have time for them, because we really don't want to invest in people. Help us to find that balance, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.